In May, I had a chance to go to Cuba with Jerry. Um, Cuba's kind of those places that I think all of us, maybe not all of us, but I looked as a bucket list item because all the history of Cuba. I mean, it's so close to us and so, so much significant history right there. Also, you have Miami, you got Little Havana, um, you can, the food we eat is Cuban. Um, there's so many things that made me excited about seeing this and also to understand what was communism really like and what were the impact of communism on a country. Well, also getting to know Jerry for a while and talking about it, he actually lived in Cuba until he was 14, so he got pre, pre-Castro and post-Castro days. So I got to hear a little bit about that. And as we were planning for the trip, Brandon, who's here, and David and I all got to go with Jerry on this trip. And he had planned every detail, months of planning. He's one of these guys that's great to go with because he does all the worrying. You don't. He just says, go here and you follow, which is nice because I just got back from a trip and that wasn't the case. But this was awesome. And everything we're thinking about, he says, let's get there three hours early just in case. We thought that was a little little much, but we all agreed. We got there three hours early, plenty of time. We sat down, we get on the plane, and you can almost see a sigh of relief for Jerry because finally we're on the plane. In an hour and a half, he's going to have to do it all over as we go through Cuba and get us to our destination. But while we're in the plane, we get an announcement from a kind of upbeat pilot. He says, he's about to make an announcement. It sounds great. He says, I have an announcement. And he goes, Our, my announcement is we're turning around. But he does it in a really positive way. Um, it didn't soften the blow. Everybody grumbles. Um, he says, so, there's a problem in Havana. We'll have to circle Havana for two hours. And we don't have enough fuel to do that. So we're going to turn around and go to Fort Lauderdale. And so they do this big, wide S turn. And while they're doing that, they're talking to all the people in Spanish. And the other half of the plane gets all upset because they finally hear what's going on. And you can see everybody's devastated because they're thinking, I'm going to Cuba, and now I'm turning around. How many hours is this going to take? And for a moment, it went through my mind. I said, poor Jerry. He planned all this. He controlled everything. And at the end of the day, he can't control this. There's nothing he can do. And I felt awful for him. I said... You know, as much as I was inconvenienced and said, well, it'd be five hours, I thought all the logistics that went into it, now we're turning around, we didn't even know if we'd go. Well, about five to ten minutes later, the chipper pilot gets on, and at this point, I don't want to hear what he has to say. Um, He says, I have good news. We're turning back to Havana. I said, hallelujah, we're going back. They do a little S-turn, and we go back, and when we get there, we still don't know what's happened. Um, And we land, and when we get off the plane, they said a plane had crashed about a couple miles off the runway on takeoff. Um, And it was a Mexican airline, it was filled with Cuban people, nationals, and pastors on board. And we get off, and they said 130 people died. And we're going, wow, this is heavy. So I come into Cuba expecting things, and this is not what I expected. And you could feel the national anguish over this country. I mean, we walked in and everybody was solemn. Even the guy that was meeting us was solemn. And, you know, for all the anticipation, this was not what you expected. So we still don't really have a good idea of what Cuba's like because we come in in this weird circumstance. But what I did do is I brought a video. I didn't make this video. Brandon made this video, which is awesome. But this video kind of tells our little story. It's about two and a half minutes. And it's the church that we're helping in a little town called Sandino. Now, just so you know, It's the church that we as a congregation have supported. 
They were a missions church. They are now a particularized church. And now they have a building because of Coleridge Presbyterian and the work of people like Jerry. So I want you to see it. Awesome, huh? Um, so we're driving back from after doing that, seeing that, and that building that they were in was actually the building that we helped build in conjunction with the people over there. Um, as you saw, the worship looks a little bit like ours, doesn't it? They were very energetic. I knew I was in trouble when Jerry said it's going to be three hours, and here you need earplugs. It didn't feel like three hours, and I wanted to hear everything. It was amazing to see the Spirit of God move. Um, and so we're driving back, and I'm asking Jerry about 10,000 questions, and after a while, you just you get tired of a- ask, answering questions. So he says, you need to read a book. 
It's called Waiting for Snow in Havana by a guy named Carlos Ayer, who is a professor of history and theology at Yale University. And basically, he lived a very similar life and similar things that Jerry went through, similar area. And as I was reading the book, I'm getting to see through his eyes what it was like, pre-Castro, post-Castro. The imagery and the language he used was incredible, the descriptions. But I got to feel it. I got to feel what it was like to be there and trying to recall all the places we drove by, the embassies that were embassies now, but houses before. And they had flags on them, you know, from different nations. And there's rows of them and rows of them. And I'm thinking, this is amazing that these people once lived in these homes and now, now they're embassies for different countries. And they were taken by the government and there's no, nothing they could do. Um, but to think of kids leaving at 14 and parents going, you need to go, we think it's the best, and you leave on your own, and I hope it goes well. That was a story for many Cuban people. And I think of that, and how do I even live that? So as I began reading this, I, I started just the last couple months, after I went to Cuba, I began to feel like, what is going on with the Spirit of God? Is it moving in places in a way that it used to move in America? You think of America and you think of what it was known for as a Christian nation and God breathed on it and there was blessing to this nation. The question is, is that still happening? And as I start going around and traveling, I start to look at countries and I see the fervor and the passion of people, not just in the way they worship, but in the way they talk, speak about God. It's everything. And I start examining my own life. And so I got to this passage because it was something I needed. It's something you hear all the time. It's John 3. So I want you to turn to it. But I want, hopefully I want you to look through the eyes of Nicodemus in a way that you haven't before. I think some of our greatest insights in life are by looking through the eyes of a person who lived a story. I think somebody that's lived that story and actually trying to see what their life is like, some could call that empathy. The ability to look and put yourself in another person's shoes. But I want you to do that as we read it. So if you have your Bible, join with me. John 3, and we're going to read 15 verses, so I want you to listen well. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Those are important right there. He's a Pharisee, his name, and he was a ruler. This man came to Jesus by night, which I always think is interesting. Why did he come by night? And he said to him, Rabbi, which means master teacher, we... So it's not just himself. He said, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say unto you, lest you are born again, you cannot, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is an interesting verse. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. It's God's control. He does what he wishes, when he wishes, and where he wishes. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. For the third time, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. 
If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then the famous verse of John three sixteen is after this. This is the pretext. And what's going on is we've got a man named Nicodemus. His name actually means, is made up of Nike, which we all have seen, which means victory or conqueror. Demos, which mean, we get the word democracy from, means people. He's the victor of the people. He already has a great name. We also see he has a great position. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's a ruler. He's part of the Sanhedrin, which Sanhedrin is just basically a group group of uh, Pharisees, the elite Pharisees, and they are actually given the role and responsibility of executing the law in a certain region, locally and at Jerusalem, the main contingency for all of Israel. And Roman authority gave them the right to do this. History tells us that Nicodemus was probably part of the Jerusalem council. He was part of that Sanhedrin group that actually ruled over everything. So when we say he knew the law, we know that he knew the law explicitly. Yet he encounters Jesus and he's completely confused. He knows all this about Israel and yet he does not understand. Secondly, we know he's probably pretty wealthy. He's a financially well-to-do man. So he has a position of authority. He has a great name. He's a man that has great wealth. When I was at seminary, uh, there was a professor, his name was Cal Beisner. And Cal Beisner was um, a guy that was just straight shooter, tough teacher. I mean, I was glad to get done with his classes, that's all I got to say. Loved him. Um, But Cal, one day, he was big on this idea of what does your name mean? What do the biblical names mean? And they're important. So he sits everybody down and he says, I want to know what your name means. So he goes to one guy, and the first guy is like man of valor. You know, it's like something really positive. And then another guy is like uh, bearer of Christ. And then he gets to me. I happen to know what my name means, but I didn't want to say. And he goes, Dwayne, what's your name mean? And I said, well, it's Gaelic. And he says, well, what does your name mean? I said, it means dark one. And I said, and you can see everybody kind of move in their seats like we have Darth Vader in our room. The evil one is sitting right next to us. And I'm trying to redeem this moment because everybody has this uncomfortable, he just said he's the dark one. How does that pan out in life? And I said, but my middle name is Blanchard, which means white one. And I said, so here's, here's the thing. I was born into darkness. I was washed white as snow. And so I kind of redeemed this whole thing. And I said, Hey, am I okay? He said, you're okay. He says, but very interesting, not in a good way. You know what I'm saying? And Very interesting, Dwayne. I I still remember it to this day. Nicodemus' name meant a lot. He's a person, I think, that we would relate with very well at Coal Ridge. I think when we think about the wealth, the opportunity, the names we have, I think we relate as much with Nicodemus as we do anyone in the Bible. Really do. I want you to think about that for a second. What scares me most is I'm most like Nicodemus. And you think of the people that Jesus shamed Who did he shame? He shamed people like Nicodemus. But you know what gives me incredible hope? Is Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the Bible. Anybody know that? Three times. He's mentioned three times only in the book of John. He's mentioned in John 7, which you think we're in John 3 right now, and we go through the Samaritan 
uh, the woman at the well, and we get to seven. We only got a couple chapters here. And during those chapters, we see that they already want to kill Jesus. So they're out to kill Jesus. John writes these long, long chapters, and he gets to 50 verses. And all the pre-verses in chapter 7 all talk about how the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. And it gets to this verse. In John 7, verse 50, it says this. Nicodemus, who had gone before and was one of them, being the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. All of a sudden, we got a guy that's ashamed, confused, and afraid. All of a sudden, he's standing up boldly. And he says, does not our law say that he has to have a hearing? And it's more than him trying to obey the law. He's defending Christ. And then so we see that all of a sudden we go, we have, we have this man that's a Pharisee that all of a sudden becomes a follower quickly. And he's moving and he's following Jesus. He's watching him. He's seeing him. And then in this next chapter, it's 19. It's all the way at the end of the story in the book of John. There's only 21 chapters, but in 19, he comes to this place where Jesus dies and they're looking to bury him. And you remember who buries Jesus, actually wraps him up is a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He's a disciple. Now this is what it says in verse nine, chapter 19, verse 38, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. A lot being said there. He was afraid of who? The Jews. So he came and took his body away. This is interesting. Nicodemus also. What was Nicodemus? A Pharisee and a Jew. But he's not afraid of him which is interesting, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. I like how John just reminds him of his coming at night. Came bringing mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he had crucified, there was a garden. and the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus in there. So what do they do? They take Jesus, they put him in there. But the more important thing is who brings all the burial clothes? Is Nicodemus. By the end of Jesus' life, where is Nicodemus? At the foot of the cross. He's at the foot of the cross. And so I, the first idea I want you to see is Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a follower. The next thing I want you to see, what are three things did Jesus say to Nicodemus? And he said it starting with truly, truly, which means emphatically this is true. Jesus said it three times. And he said, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means there's no way that on our own birthright or where we're positioned in life, we can ever see God because of where we were born. One of the concerns I have for my own life is I grew up at Westminster. I grew up, went to Knox. I'm like the poster child. Just went through everything that Dr. Kennedy made. did it all. And you could feel like at some level... Your birthright makes you okay. And you keep on going. Here's, here's the Jewish people. So many of us have been here for so long that we don't even know when we actually accepted Christ to be our Savior. And there's some goodness in there. There's that covenantal thing. There's some greatness in there. But there's also some things that are negative with that. 
some of those negative things is over time, our hearts become waxed over and our hearts begin to very deceptively confuse us that we're okay. And look at the next thing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and spirit, have you been born of spirit? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. If we're not born in two ways, there's no way we can enter. The last thing he says, I say to you when we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. At this point, Nicodemus was not assured that Jesus was who he said he was. So he, he fixes that, and later he follows him all the way to the end. The last point I want to say, and then I want to just kind of sum this up with a couple of illustrations. John 3, 8, it says this, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. I can imagine Nicodemus standing before Christ. He's standing there going, I've come here to know the answers. And when he stands before him, he says, give me the answers. And what does he say? The Spirit blows where it will. You may not get it. So what does Nicodemus do at that point? What if, what kind of anguish must he have? I'm following you. I'm putting my life on the line. I'm standing out for you. And you know what you tell me? Is you might not receive it. So what does he do? He goes to where Jesus is. He knows the source of salvation. Even though at that point, I don't believe he's saved. I don't believe he put his trust. He was confused. Now, I just got back from Puerto Rico two days ago. It looks like I'm a worldwide, worldwide traveler. It's really not. I've done a couple trips in the last six, six years. But coming back from Puerto Rico, I went with the youth. We went to 30. Caleb was there. Ben's not here because he's probably still recovering. And we went, and we went to uh, work on houses. But right when we got on the plane, I don't know if you guys saw this, there was something called Hurricane Barrel that was out in the ocean. So we get on the plane, and right then Rob goes, he comes to the meeting when we're kicking off, and he says, hey, there's a tropical depression, just be aware of it. And I'm thinking, well, that does me no good. I'm getting on a plane right now. And we're watching it, monitoring it. And you know how they do with the news. They hype it up, and they say it's going to be a Category 2. And I'm thinking, we're coming here for hurricane relief. We're about to be in a hurricane. And so as we're watching this hurricane, it, it goes down. I mean, it turns into a depression, a tropical storm. And so I go, okay, we're safe. But on Monday, the day we're supposed to work, it's raining like crazy. I mean, just raining. And we have to kind of punt. We're thinking, what are we going to do? We're supposed to do construction. We're supposed to do something. So we decided we're going to do a service scavenger hunt. We just made this up. It's not a real thing. But we basically had five or six cars. And we said, everybody get in your car. And you go somewhere and you have to serve for... A couple hours. So one group goes, we're going to go to Salvation Army. One goes, we're going to go to Food Pantry. Another goes, we'll clean the streets. My team, we decided we were going to hand out water to the workers on the street and, and also homeless. And we would give the homeless $2. So all the guys pitched in. They pitched in too. We're all given the money. And we drive around the city. I love this because I got to stay in the car. And it's raining, and I would just then usher them out. Go, guys, go. And I said, we've got to win. I said, there's two things. We want to serve, but we need to win this. So get the best pictures you can. So every time I'd say, did you get a picture? And they're always like this with the homeless, you know, because they didn't want to do it too close. Everybody was uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. And over time, we got 25 different pictures. One of the guys, about halfway through, leans over to the car. I don't know what he's saying because it's in Spanish. 
And I'm just nodding my head going, yo lo entiendo todo, which means I understand everything. I understood nothing. And, and I'm saying he's, he's praying. And he says, I want to thank you. You can tell. Bless me. He says, bless you. And he, he's like, he's praying. And I go, it's a, it's a bottle of water. I mean, it was as I given him a million dollars. And he was so thankful. He started walking with the car. And I'm like, dude, we got to get pictures. We got to win this thing. I don't have time for this. And so I'm taking this picture and my heart starts to change. All of a sudden I'm getting convicted. This is not just a service project. These are people. It's people. So I want to get in on it now that I've been in the car with AC and all the rain's falling on those guys. I say, I want, to, I want to get out and I want to participate. So I park my car, I pull over, and there's a man underneath an awning that's wrapped completely in a full sheet. Can't even see his head. I get over there, and I take the cup of water, and I'm used to working with the homeless, but this hit me. It hit me because all he had was Popeye's cup, Popeye's chicken, and he's wrapped in a sheet. And I gave him a cup of water, I gave him $2 and I put the $2. He never even saw me put the $2 under the cup of water and left. And for that moment, I thought to myself, what I gave him was more than he has total. His total net worth was less than what I just gave him. And I think it was as if God, I got hit in the stomach. And that moment where you know that God's breathing on you. So you need this. And it hit me at that moment that God is in the places. God's in the places where the people who are in need are. It took Nicodemus to figure that out. He knew he couldn't stay with his Pharisee friends. He had to go to the places where God was doing healings. He had to go to the places where people were getting saved. He had to go to the places where people were hurting. I'm going to conclude with this last story. Um, this is, could be apocryphal, I don't know. Um, I think the point's good enough. It's in Chicken Soup for the Soul, so I guarantee it, it's legit. Um, and it's also in the Episcopal um, kind of like stories. I found it in other places. It, it, there's an old village where these two brothers were raising sheep. And uh, they had a good amount of sheep, but they also were adding to the sheep by stealing from other people's farms. And they finally got caught. And they didn't have prisons where they were located. So the way that they dealt with people that had violated the law was they would brand you. So they brand you with an ST for sheep thief. So it must be an English-speaking place because it wouldn't make sense. So ST, and they, the one brother goes, I can't bear this burden. So he leaves. The other brother goes, I'm going to live with this. And he repented and said, I'm sorry. He served for years. They were both young men when this happened. By the time they got old, they were old and people had forgotten why they were even branded. So a young man goes by and he's at a cafe and the cafe owner says, he says, why does this man have ST on his forehead? And they knew him because he had served everybody. And he says, well, he's a saint. And he said, he's a saint. And it made sense to the kid. He goes, oh, that makes sense. Because the man's life had been so radically changed. Now, here's what I'm afraid of. We talk about our country and all that's happening. 
and the spiritual well-being of our country. We talk about Broward County as one of the worst counties in all of America for spiritual vitality. We talk about our church at a lower level. How are we doing? It concerns me. It concerns me for me. I think, how am I doing spiritually? Um, w. Uh, Dwight L. Moody once said, because people are asking him, you know, if you want to change the world, how do you change the world? And he, he had heard this repeatedly in his church. We want to change the world. And he says, we're not going to change the world the way you think. He said, so one of the sermons he got, and he drew all a circle around it, and he said, the way we're going to change the world is jump in this circle and change what, that which is in the circle. I'm not talking about we are going to go out and be more moralistic and we're going to be better people. But I am talking about this, that a change in our heart has to happen if we're going to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And people are needing to see people. They need to see. What happened to me was I love going with those teenagers because they woke me up. They woke me up and I said, man, I went on a trip and I saw even their progress. They went from kind of going devotions to the end. We were singing out loud and we're singing for Christ. And I think so many times we spend so much time here that we don't spend time being in the places where we need to be, where people are hurting. The whole reason I push outreach as hard as I can is not just for the men that we go to serve. I think about that guy that I went up to. He never even saw me. He never moved. But God saw that I needed that fresh breath of air from him on top of me. So that my heart would eventually be renewed and I could also see the kingdom of God. One of the things I love is David Bybee sitting right there. I didn't tell about it last service because you weren't there. Um, but David was sitting in that, that service. And did you see at the end when we did the, the hand motions? I don't know if you recognize what they were. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. You recognize it, Ben, because you've heard it a thousand times. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith. That is the EE witnessing outline. I watched him cry during that to see the excitement. And I go, when are we going to cry for the things of the Lord? When are we going to do that? And that's because if we can't get under the breath of God, and that's be in the places where he is and know the source, we'll never see the kingdom of God. And I pray for our church and I pray for our community that we begin to open the eyes of the blind so that they can see.